Good morning, dear brothers and sisters. Let's hear God's word. Our Old Testament text this morning is Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 17. You'll recognize these words, of course, words that are taken up and used again uh, in our New Testament text in a few minutes in Matthew 21. Uh, So this is going to give us the context for the quote that uh, Matthew uses regarding Jesus in Matthew 21. So let's give our attention to God's word now, Zechariah 9, 9 through 17. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah, my bow, fitted with the bow of Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is his goodness and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, and the new wine, the young women. Our New Testament text, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? 
So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Thanks be to God for his word. Pray now with me that he would bless it to us. Our great God and gracious Father, thank you that you have given us your life-giving word. Your word, which is indeed the most precious and valuable thing that this world affords. Because here we see in the clearest of places our Lord Jesus Christ in his glory and beauty and excellency in his perfect uh, fittedness to be our Savior. We thank you, Father, for this word. We pray that you would open our hearts now to receive it. Open our eyes, Lord, apart from the work of your Spirit. We are blind to our Lord Jesus Christ because of our sin and unbelief. So come and take our blindness away and show us our Savior. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. During our time in Philadelphia, when we were down there for seminary, uh, my wife and I used to really enjoy walks around the city. And one of our favorite places to walk was the Benjamin Franklin Parkway, because along it there's lots of statues and, and monuments. It starts up past the Art Museum and winds its way through into the city. It's a, it's a beautiful place to walk. But one of the most prominent of the monuments in that area, sitting right in front of the Art Museum and facing down towards... Uh, City Hall. It's this massive, larger-than-life statue of George Washington. Uh, It's got three tiers. I think it's about 40-something feet high. And at the tallest point, there's Washington seated on this great charger, this massive, brawny horse. And Washington, you know, he's, he's sitting erect. His shoulders are back. You know, he's looking straight ahead. This great hero, this great champion, and and conqueror. Um, when you see a statue like that, right, that large and impressive, you feel a sense of, of awe and, and respect and maybe a sense of, of pride. Like, yeah, that's the kind of man that I want to follow. That's the kind of man that I respect. That, that's the kind of man that, that I need to be leading me and representing me and rescuing me, that's the leader that I deserve. Now imagine if the sculptor had done it a little differently. Imagine if he'd, he'd sculpted a very different statue, and instead of Washington, this huge statue, but made him average height, smaller than he actually was, perhaps. Five foot seven, five eight. And instead of a great, strong war horse, imagine him sitting on a donkey, on a donkey's colt, never been ridden. Um, imagine he was, you know, none of this three-tiered pedestal, great massive granite monument, uh, but, but just lowly man sitting on a donkey. What would that communicate? Instead of might, it would communicate meekness, gentleness. Um, instead of pride at seeing that, right? That's, that's my hero. What would you feel? Maybe embarrassed. You don't want people to see if this is who our leader is, our king. Um, might think, well, he doesn't, he doesn't represent me. I deserve someone who, who looks better and stronger and, and, and more able to save me. Now, loved ones, uh, you, can, you can see where this is going, I'm sure. Uh, in the opening verses here of Matthew 21, we are confronted 
with Jesus as He is. Not as we might wish Him to be. Not the Christ that those around Him expected. But Christ as He is. And He comes, the great conquering King, He comes gently and, and meekly with humility. He is here, right? As this is the great moment. This is the week of, of this is the Passion Week, right? He's, he's, he's heading to the cross. He's heading to save his people. Um, it's the moment that they've been waiting for for generations. The salvation of God, the kingdom of God. But he comes to bring it with gentleness and meekness. And he challenges us as he does. As, as we see him come in this way, he's challenging us. To see that, no, He is perhaps not the Christ we expected, but He is the Christ that we need. He is the one alone who can save us. And so we should cry out to Him and bow to Him and look to Him alone for that salvation. Let's dive into the text now. Uh, We begin in verse 1. Jesus and His disciples are continuing this pilgrimage. We saw this last week. Uh, They're they're on their way down from Galilee. They've left Jericho, some 18 miles from Jerusalem, and they're winding up this very rugged, uh, uh, arid countryside towards Jerusalem. They've now made the ascent up the Mount of Olives, um, uh, and, and then... From the top of the Mount of Olives, looking out, they can, of course, see Jerusalem spread out before them, a uh, beautiful view of the city. And situated on the, on, on the side of the Mount of Olives is this village we read about in the text, uh, this little village of Bethphage. And Jesus comes there as his final stop before riding into the city, and he comes there with his disciples. And as we see the events, as we see the, 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 the setting laid out here for this story, we see that Jesus is absolutely in control of the situation, that he is approaching it as the one in charge. Um, he, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's piloting these events so that it arranges, so that he goes. They take him where he wants them to go. Um, he wants his entrance into Jerusalem to cause a stir. He wants to draw attention. Um, he wants it to, to raise questions. He wants it to, to, to force this conflict that he's had with the Jewish authorities to come to its tipping point. And, and as we see this even in the way that he's instructing his disciples and these little details uh, were given in the, in the text about how he arranges for this donkey. Uh, he, he sends the disciples into the village to, to bring a donkey and her colt to him. Um, it doesn't seem that, that he's arranged for this ahead of time. It seems like he's just sending, he knows by, his, by, by this spirit, he knows the donkey will be there. And he sends his disciples in and he tells them, interestingly, right, when someone sees you taking this donkey and this colt and they ask you, why, who's, who authorized you to take these things? He says, say to them, the Lord has need of them. Isn't that striking? He doesn't say, tell them, our Lord, right, the one who's our master. Uh, he doesn't say, tell them Jesus sent you, but the Lord sent you. What's that going to communicate to a Jew living in Bethphage? The Lord has need of these animals. The Lord himself, right? That's the word kurios. Uh, it's uh, the word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses for Yahweh, the Lord God himself. So Jesus is, in a subtle way, claiming to be God as he arranges for this. And as he continues to orchestrate these events, um, 
He's doing it to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. There are two prophecies that were given uh, that where our attention is drawn to. The first one is Isaiah 62, verse 11. Those words, say to the daughter of Zion there, uh, those come from Isaiah 62, verse 11. The context there is about how God is going to bring salvation, final salvation to his, to his people. Uh, that, that salvation is not going to be a thing, but it's going to be a person, God himself. Um, and it calls, uh, calls um, Jerusalem to rejoice in God's salvation. Um, the rest of the quotation comes from Zechariah 9, verse 9. And it says this, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. In the context of Zechariah 9, 9, um, God, God himself is promising to come to his people, and he's promising to bring his king to his people. And as you read it, it's one of those wonderful, uh, uh, wonderful uh, moments in the Old Testament where it's not clear if the king is God himself or if the king is someone who's representing God. And of course, Jesus reveals to us that it is both. Uh, it is God himself come as the king of his people. And then in the middle of that prophecy, in Zechariah 9, 9, which we read, there's this line that doesn't seem to fit. Right? It's about God coming to rescue, defeat the enemies, uh, subdue the, the peoples, uh, um, and establish his kingdom. But in the middle of it all, there's this little line that doesn't seem to fit with the rest. Uh, your king is coming to you lowly and riding on a donkey. That word lowly, uh, I like the way the New King James translates that uh, to show us the, the, the deep humility and meekness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to highlight for us three things that Jesus is showing us as he's showing us his fulfillment of this prophecy. And the first is this very thing, that he is the gentle, humble, and meek Messiah. Now, loved ones, we're used to that idea. We've heard it for a long time, that Christ is the humble, gentle, lowly Messiah. Um, and uh, for us, it's not... It doesn't sound necessarily ridiculous. But think, think about the context in which it's spoken and, and um, the culture in which it was spoken. It would have been a complete joke to the Romans to have a Messiah riding on a donkey. It would have been just absurd to them. They would laugh at this. Um, to see the contrast here, let me read a few lines from the great Roman epic, the Aeneid, uh, which is about Rome's hero. Uh, it was written some few decades before Christ's birth, and uh, it's about this founder of the city of Rome, Aeneas, and um, it ends with this climactic duel one-on-one. It looks straight out of a Marvel movie between Aeneas on the one hand and his enemy, Turnus, on the other. And listen to the way that Rome's hero is described. Aeneas made his deadly spear flash in the sun and aimed it, narrowing his eyes for a lucky hit. Then, distant still, he put his body's might into the cast. Never a stone that soared from a wall-battering catapult went humming loud as this, nor with so great a crack burst ever a bolt of lightning. It flew on like a black whirlwind bringing devastation, pierced with a crash the rim of the sevenfold shield and passed clean through the middle of Turnus's thigh. A few pages later, the duel ends with Turnus pleading for mercy, and Aeneas, in a rage, kills him. 
That's Rome's hero. Right? It's a mighty warrior. But Jesus says, bring me a donkey. I'll come gently. I'm coming meekly. It's not that he couldn't be. It's not that he didn't have the strength to be the great fierce conqueror. But it's that he knew that his calling uh, as the Messiah was to bow himself to the yoke of servants and to come humbly out of love and, and grace for his people to save them through his meekness and his gentleness. Right? One word of command from him could, could bring down the whole Roman Empire, couldn't it? But instead he comes gently, humbly, the suffering servant. Remember those words that he said back in chapter 11, which are so much the very heart of Matthew's Gospel. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is, the, that is so much the heart of Matthew's Gospel and the heart of what Christ has come to be and to do. The suffering servant for his people. Um, he is, as we said, he's the Lord, God, Yahweh, come in the flesh. The great king riding on a donkey all the way to the cross. This is, as we said, it's foolishness to the Roman culture. It was foolishness to the Jews who wanted Christ to come and, and grant them a very political, temporary kind of salvation. Um, uh, God's mission is to use this apparent foolishness, this apparent ridiculousness and weakness to bring glory to Him and to Him alone as He brings salvation. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 1. He's writing to a church that's infatuated with these uh, Roman ideals of wisdom and power. And he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. This is what Jesus wants us to see, loved ones, as he comes into Jerusalem on the donkey, that he himself, the meek Messiah, is the Savior that we need. He's also showing us that he's coming to bring us peace. As he comes in, um, uh, he's fulfilling this, this prophecy from Zechariah 9, 9, which was about, about Christ bringing uh, peace to his people. The next verse, 9, 10, of uh, that prophecy in Zechariah, says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is building on what, what, what we've just seen about the meekness and the humility of Christ, that he's come not to, not to bring judgment, but to bring the gospel of God's grace, to bring reconciliation with God himself. Um, and he's not going to do it on the back of a war horse, but he's going to do it 
as he promised in chapter 20, as we just saw a few weeks ago, he's going to do it through his humility, through becoming the servant, the suffering servant. Um, he's, going to, he's going to come and he's going to draw the sting of death out and take it to himself. He's going to heal us by being crushed for us. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Just when you see that it's not despite His meek humility that He brings us peace, but it's through His meek humility that He brings us peace. The third thing we see Christ teaching us as he rides into Jerusalem then is, uh, is that he's also coming as the great conquering king. Um, we don't want to miss this. We're, we've been focusing on his meekness and his gentleness, and that is so much of the great theme here, the dominant note. Uh, but as he comes, he also is, right, he, he's showing us meekness and gentleness, but don't equate that with weakness um, because he's coming as the great king riding into the city. And, and he's riding in like the battle's already won. He's coming in not with a conquering army, but he's coming in with a victory parade, saying, this is mine. And he's come to claim that and declare that with openness, that he is the Messiah. Come, yes, in meekness, and yes, also with authority to win salvation for his people. So we see in Christ these wonderful, uh, these wonderful attributes brought together, which we don't normally associate with each other. It's like a great symphony when you've got right, the, the strong or the, the melody line, then you've got the, the, the other lines harmonizing with it and interweaving with it and overlaying each other. With Christ, we have these two themes of his gentleness and his meekness and his might and his authority brought together in the text before us. All this we see in our Savior riding into Jerusalem, the meek Messiah. And it's interesting to look at. It's fascinating to see. It's wonderful to see his character. No one else like this. Uh, But dear friends, um, we cannot simply look at this with passing interest and curiosity. Jesus, as he does this, as he shows us these things, riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, he is not showing us something that we can just be bystanders to. Watch, it happens, and we walk away unchanged, like watching the Super Bowl when your team's not playing, right? No, you have skin in the game. You, because of who he is, right? He's coming as the great king. And so you, you are faced with a choice. Do you bow? Do you trust? Do you cry out for salvation? But he's continuing. We've seen this throughout Matthew's Gospel as well, that he's he's pressing the point of of, of choosing. Are you going to be for Christ or against Christ? Because of who he is, there's no neutral ground with him. You can't have a half-hearted following after Christ or a half-hearted trusting in Christ. We see this in how Matthew presents us with the different responses of the people around Jesus. 
First of all, we see the disciples. Uh, they seem to be all in with what Jesus is doing and saying here. I think they've been waiting for this. They're excited for this. Right? This is finally the moment. He's finally saying he's the Messiah, and he's entering with authority to Jerusalem. Uh, they, they spread their cloaks on the cult for Jesus as a seat uh, for him. Um, many of the, the crowds who are coming down with them from Galilee seem full of zeal for this Christ as well. Um, they are... Uh, as it were, rolling out the red carpet for him, proclaiming him as the great king. They recognize he's the Messiah, and they're, they're exuberant about it. They're shouting out their praises. Uh, John's gospel fleshes out the picture for us by telling us that there's also a crowd coming out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus. And so you have those coming with him, uh, then you have those coming out from Jerusalem. Uh, they, they've heard of the raising of Lazarus, John tells us. Uh, the ones from Galilee, they've seen Jesus cast out demons and heal their sick. Perhaps he's healed them. Uh, he's fed them uh, in the wilderness, and he's taught them about the kingdom of heaven. And so they're all there together, rejoicing in this Christ, exuberant praise. They're shouting out their praise to Christ, and the fervor for this is spreading like fire uh, through, through the surrounding area. What a wonderful moment to have been part of as they're there praising Christ. And they start singing Psalm 118. Um, even, as, uh, even as Christmas carols are in our heads at Christmas time, as the Jews go up to Passover, Psalm 118 was part of a set of psalms, 113 to 118, that they would sing at Passover time. These are the songs of the season, if you will, for them. And so this is the great climactic one, Psalm 118. They're going up to the Passover, they're singing this psalm, and, and it's all about God coming to save his people through their king. And about that king then going up to Jerusalem and being welcomed with praise and, and joy and the gates being thro uh, thrown open to, to welcome him as the victory procession winds up to the temple itself. So for them to be singing this psalm is, is, is clearly for them to be recognizing Christ as the king and as the Messiah. Uh, they're, they're saying, this is the king that was promised, who's come to rule over us and God will save us through him. Um, it's not clear for how many of them this is a deep conviction or it's just a, they're caught up in the moment. But for many of them, uh, they think that Jesus is the promised king. But loved ones, we need to kind of pry a little bit and, and push on this a little bit. Do they see clearly what kind of a king he is? Do they know what kind of salvation he's bringing? Do they see that, that uh, yes, he's the king, but he's the humble, meek Messiah who's come to bring you salvation from sin and from the wrath of God? It's interesting, if you look at the, the psalm that they're singing, Psalm 118, it, it tells us so much about Christ that we can see looking back through the lens of Christ. Uh, so Psalm 118 uh, talks about God is the one who brings deliverance from death. Do they know, as they sing it, that it's going to mean the Messiah dying and being delivered from death, and them delivered from death in it? Psalm 118 says the Messiah will be like a stone that's rejected, but then the builders, right, they rejected it, but then God uses it to make it the cornerstone of his new creation. Do they know that that is not just about Gentiles rejecting Christ, the nations rejecting Christ? but the Jews themselves. Um, Psalm 118 says, bind the sacrifice. Bind the sacrifice and take it up to the altar. Do they know that Jesus himself is going to be the sacrifice bound 
and taken up to the altar, that he is the suffering servant. It's not clear yet that they do understand these things. And we see this as the, as the whole city stirred up, buzzing like a hornet's nest that's been kicked as this news goes around and everyone's talking and everyone's saying, who is this? Who is Jesus? Um, can this really be the Christ? And, and Christ himself is, is pushing this question on them. It's time to decide if it's going to be Christ as, as you want him to be or Christ as he actually is. And as they're debating the question, um, some of the Jews from Galilee give, give this answer in verse 11 to the question, who is Jesus? They say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Is that a good answer? What do you think? Have they demoted Jesus? He was the king coming in, now he's the prophet from Nazareth. No, I don't think they're demoting him. I think it is a good answer in many ways. Um, because the Old Testament promised the Messiah, yes, a king, also a prophet, the prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15, Moses says, The Lord your God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, all the prophets since Moses, they've been in a similar model as Moses. They followed many of his uh, traits, but, but none has reached his level or exceeded his level of importance and, and the way that he brought Israel out of, out of Egypt. So they are looking to the prophet who will come. And this is the one they're saying, right? They, they call Jesus the prophet from Nazareth. And the word the there has all the meaning it can carry. He is the great and final prophet. Notice something else, though. The Jews say about Jesus here. They recognize he's the prophet, the great Messiah, the final prophet, but what else do they say about him? He's from Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth, yes, that Nazareth, right? The backwoods, uh, the, the, the place that's only significant because it's so insignificant, that Nazareth. Um, Jesus, right? We saw this already. These two things brought together as Jesus. He's the king on a donkey. Great king, humble donkey. Jesus, the prophet, the great prophet from humble Nazareth. It's inescapable to us, isn't it? These two aspects of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do they see these Jews pointing out as, as that Jesus comes from Nazareth, that, 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 uh, that, that, that he is this humble servant come to suffer for them even as he is their savior? We're not, we're not, we're not sure. Over the next few chapters, we're going to see Jerusalem erupt. We're going to see people responding to Christ in different ways. But just about everyone will turn from him. Um, some of his own will forsake him. Judas himself will betray him. Judas will realize, this is not the Christ that I ordered. This is not the one I expected. Um, and he would rather betray him than follow him. Uh, the Jewish authorities are going to crucify him because they'd rather hang on to their kingdom than accept Christ's kingdom. As our brothers and sisters, having seen these things, we need to ask, well, what about ourselves? What about, what about for you? Christ is the king who comes, and he comes and he demands our submission. He demands our worship, our praise, and our thanks. And he is the prophet, and as the prophet, he commands our attention. We cannot ignore what he has to say. 
His Word is not just another word. It is the final Word of God. And He is at the same time in both of these things, as our Messiah, He is the suffering servant, the humble, lowly, gentle, meek, dying for His people, Messiah. But that wonderful humility, loved ones, it throws the gauntlet down. And to pick it up in saving faith is to say, yes, I need that kind of Messiah. I need the one who doesn't just come to bring about the kingdom I want, who doesn't come just to affirm me in in, in my good, who doesn't come uh, just to kind of help me along a little bit, uh, to, to, to help me be a better person. But the Messiah I need is the one who dies for my sins. We need to accept that we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves and, and that we are blind beggars without Him. And we need His mercy. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You. We praise You. You are the great Messiah, the great conquering King, and also the meek and gentle suffering servant. We pray that You would reveal to us by the sight of faith, Christ in His glory as our Savior, ourselves in our hideousness as sinners, and our need for Him, and draw us to Him. We pray this in His name. Amen.